Good morning. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. We are continuing our study, as we have been, of the book of Genesis. But this morning we're taking a little bit of a, not a diversion, but we're just sort of coming at it from another angle. We've been looking at the last 13 chapters of Genesis and recognizing the sovereignty of God, His control over every molecule of the universe, every star in the galaxy. We're learning that He is indeed that way, and we're seeing it very specifically in the life of Joseph. But the question comes for us to kind of begin to recognize that most people see that in the passage of Joseph. Most people who have read it or heard it at some point, they can see there's, there's some control. God's in control of a few things. At least when we actually stop to study it, we're, it's almost undeniable. But the reality is we don't stop to study it very often. And there is a need a great deal today in the evangelical church for a neo-Copernican revolution. A neo-Copernican revolution. And brothers and sisters, I strongly suggest that many of us in this room this morning, please hear this, many of us in this room this morning need a neo-Copernican revolution in our lives in regard to our understanding of who God is. And what's it all about? So we're going to look at a different passage this morning. Where, uh, I had a different sermon. <laughs> I prepared a sermon for you this morning uh, from chapter 40 of Genesis, but the Lord gave me another sermon, and here it is. But as I am thinking about that, we're going to be looking at Ruth. So you may want to find that. It's right after the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth this morning because it's so compatible with what we've been looking at in the book of Genesis. And I want you to see that this is from beginning to end in all of Scripture, that we would come to understand more of God's sovereignty in every area of our lives because it is not merely a medicine for us. It's not merely an antidote when there are difficult times in our lives. Although the sovereignty of God is of great comfort when there are difficult times in our lives. But understanding the sovereignty of God and the glory of God in all things changes Everything. On the back of your bulletin this morning, I put the, song, the sonnet of William Shakespeare that you all learned in high school. I often use the phrase, you remember, and Bob sometimes says, oh, I don't remember, but he remembers this. Everyone remembers memorizing sonnet 116 when you were in high school. It is perhaps the most definitive statement of love outside the Bible ever. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. What is William Shakespeare saying there? He's saying this, if I'm wrong about this, I'm wrong about most everything. And that's why I say we need a neo-Copernican revolution in regard to our understanding about who God is and what's going on in the creation and in redemption and in our lives. Here's how most of us view it. And here is the Copernican revolution. Most of us 
recognize as we look around the world today, we see such flippancy and such irreverence and such foolishness going on in the so-called visible church today. In the Arminianism that's just rampant everywhere you turn your eyes. And we look and we say, well, that's not right. Because we recognize that's a man-centered religion. And we understand the Bible is not a man-centered religion. And so we think, okay, that's the, tr- that's the change. To move from a man-centered revela- centered rebel, uh, religion to a God-centered religion. And most of us sitting here this morning are here because we believe that at River City, and because the Bible says it, and therefore River City is compatible with that, we believe that we're going to hear something to do with a God-centered religion here. God-centered Christianity. Christ-exalting. Man-debasing. That's what we're expecting to hear in a Reformed church. But brothers and sisters, many of us have not yet experienced the Copernican revolution that's necessary because here's the difference. We move from a man-centered religion which is clearly erroneous to a God-centered religion which may be erroneous if your God-centered religion, listen, is God-centered as long as God is man-centered. But the Bible has a neo-Copernican revolution for us because it moves us away from a God-centered religion that is man-centered. A God-centered religion that is man-centered means I'm happy with a God-centered religion as long as God's every thought is me, my family, my health, my business, my joy, my satisfaction. Yeah, I want a God like that. But the God of the Bible, brothers and sisters, surprisingly is not like that. The God of the Bible is looking upon Himself. And what a neo-Copernican revolution means simply this, we're going to look at it this morning in the preaching, is to move from the man-centered religion, which we recognize is so foolish, some of us do, to the God-centered religion, and then we wake up and say, no, 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 a God-centered religion that's only God-centered as long as God is man-centered, is not a biblical religion, to the understanding that we now delight to join in God in His God-centeredness. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? Ruth, chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab, which is to the southeast of Israel, with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of that the Lord had visited her people, his people, and giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you, your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should have even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, mother-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, her return from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Will you pray with me, please? Our God and Father, we rejoice before you in this your word and pray that like Naomi, we might experience a Neo-Copernican revolution in our coming to understand you and the rightness and the privilege of joining with you in the pursuit of your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, for many people, theology is a first aid kit. It's a first aid kit that they pull out. They know where it is. We have a first aid kit downstairs in my study. It's in the windowsill. And if there's a problem, we can go get it. But it only has a few items in it. It only has a few items and it's only for a very limited application. For brothers and sisters, theology is not a first aid kit. It's not something to run to when we're in difficulty, although it is of help when we're in difficulty. Theology is a diet. It is a way of life. 
It is an exercise regimen and it is the medical school of spirituality that we might learn more and more about our spiritual hearts and our spiritual souls and our very being and that we might then be able to do far more than CPR upon ourselves and upon others in the challenges of this life. But not just in challenging circumstances. Brothers and sisters, to understand the sovereignty of God is going to change you in two things specifically. One, it will change you as challenging circumstances come your way. You will begin to see the very fingerprints, the very hand of God in every circumstance of your life. The second aspect, which may be far more important, is that you'll begin to recognize the trivial things that you so often give yourself to. You'll begin to recognize that you can easily, and I do mean easily, become entangled Yesterday, Bill and I, when we were speaking to someone on the uh, beach, we were doing the evangelism on the beach, and a man came up to us, an intelligent young man named Jay, and he approached us, which <laughs> kind of surprised us, uh, you know, and, and started talking very openly with us. And he was not really argumentative, I wouldn't say that, but he was not open to the gospel. He was very philosophically oriented. He had studied a great deal and, and um, you know, was quoting a number of philosophers and was quite surprised that we could recognize them and kind of stay in the conversation with him. Um, we had a very good conversation with him. But after a while, it became apparent to us, became apparent to me particularly, that it's possible, we've had a good conversation now, it's possible that this man is actually being used of the evil one merely to sap us of the limited amount of time we have on the beach here today. And when I perceived that, we, we terminated the conversation, not abruptly, but we quickly kind of terminated the conversation in the next minute or two so that we could let him go on his way and we could be about our father's business. We had said what we needed to say. We were trying to plead with him and turn him toward Christ, but he wanted to just keep on and keep on. Now, there may have been another time, another occasion to keep with him. What I'm saying is this. What takes your time reflects a great deal on your understanding of what's important in life. And we recognize that while there are lots of people to be speaking to here today, and, and this may not be the best use of our time, But how about that in your own life? Not in evangelism, but in your own life regarding priorities. What takes your time? You'll be surprised to find how often it is trivial and silly. If you don't believe me, then look at somebody else. It's real easy to see it in somebody else. Very difficult to see it in yourself. When I was 14 years old, I bought some tropical fish that were $15 a piece. Now, I was 15 years old a long time ago. And $15 was a ton of money. I had two older brothers who couldn't stop talking about that. You paid $30 for two fish? And it was not until they expressed that to me over the course of a week that I began to realize, wow, I might have a problem here. (laughs) They were so unable to grasp the value of that. And it really opened my eyes that very often we need somebody else's perspective on things. Brothers and sisters, that's true with a lot of us in the things that grasp our attention and our time and our concerns. When we look at Ruth, I want you to notice something here in chapter 1. There's a couple of things here that you need to understand very quickly here. Um, Verse uh, 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. The Lord there is all capital letters. It's the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. May the Lord deal kindly with you. This is, this is Naomi recognizing that her husband has died, her sons have died, and she's, 
She's turning to her daughters and saying, may, may the Lord do better for you or do differently for you. Okay? And she's calling God by name. She, she wants things to go well for her two daughters. Things have gone very challengingly for her. But look what she says. Oh, to know the names of God. I've mentioned to you before that very often in seminary, one of the courses that you have to take is systematic theology and one of the subsettings of systematic theology is God and man. And when you study God, it falls down into two portions and the first portion is His names. Studying the names of God. And here, Ruth uses the Almighty. But what is the context? Do you hear what she's saying when she says it? Look in verse 20. When she returns to Bethlehem, They call her pleasant. And she says, oh, no, no. Pleasant is not appropriate for me. Call me bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Look at verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord, calling him by his name, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Why do you call me pleasant? Since the Lord, Yahweh, has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. What does she mean by calling him Almighty twice and Lord by name? Here's what she's saying. The one who could have stopped this. That's what she's saying. The Almighty! The one who could have just blinked his eye and my husband would have lived. The one who could have just thought it, and my sons would still be alive today. The Almighty who can do anything He wants, any time He wants, that one has dealt bitterly with me. He's brought some challenges my way, and I'm acknowledging it. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it. The famine that drove us to Moab was by the hand of God. The death of my husband, the death of my son's By the hand of God, the capable one, the Almighty. But how does this book end? Turn over, it's just four chapters long. Turn to chapter 4 of Ruth and look at this. If you're familiar with it, her daughter-in-law Ruth marries again, marries her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And then look at verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. This book starts out with very challenging providences. Does that remind you of anything? It's the life of Joseph. Very challenging providences. And the people who are living it recognize it. We often fail to recognize how challenging the providences are because we rush to the good times. But for the 13 years that Joseph's in those challenging providences, you can believe they were very challenging. And for all the years that uh, that, uh, Naomi is living through this, but now Naomi recognizes that things are changing. Look at this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. By the way, the Lord enabled her to conceive. The Hebrew says the Lord gave her conception. Calls him by name. The Lord gave her conception. God is sovereign over the challenging circumstances of taking her husband, giving the famine, taking her sons-in-law, or excuse me, her son. The Lord did that, and now the Lord gave her conception. She gave birth to a son. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. Who did they speak to? Who's the one that's pregnant? Ruth is pregnant. But they're seeing this in the big picture. 
The women of Israel are seeing this in the big picture. They remember the forlorn face of Naomi when she came back from Moab and they greeted her and called her by name and she said, don't even call me by that name. And so instead of addressing Ruth, they have turned their attention to Naomi. Listen again. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name become famous in Israel, the name of your grandson. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, Oh, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. What does that mean? A, a son has been given to Naomi. Naomi's the grandmother. They put the baby in her lap and named the baby. And the name of the baby is Servant. What does that mean? This baby is assisting Naomi to embrace the sovereignty of God. This baby is assisting Naomi to recognize the God who took her husband away, who took her sons away, and now here she has this, and they're beginning to recognize there's bigger things going on here. And then, of course, how does this end? You know the rest of the story. Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, and David the father of the Lord Christ. I want you to listen to um, a hymn that we rarely sing in the church today. There are some people who are writing new tunes to the old hymns, and I embrace that on some levels, on many levels. And this one perhaps might need that, so it would be sung more. Listen to this. God moves in a mysterious way. William Cooper. Some of you have heard me quote William Cooper before. William Cooper is the one who tried to kill himself three times. He um, struggled with... uh, depression and difficulty all of his life, but wrote glorious hymns to the sustaining hand of God. Glorious hymns to the sustaining hand of God. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Brothers and sisters, there are many people today in the evangelical church who believe that, in fact, the Christian life is a primrose path. They believe that it's follow the yellow brick road. And they mean by that the golden path because they know that the streets of heaven are paved with gold. But I do remind you, it's the streets of heaven, not the streets of earth. It is not the pilgrim's path that is paved with gold in that sense of a primrose path. The pilgrim's path, brothers and sisters, is the cross, the valley of vision, the river of death, and the glory of the Almighty. The cross the valley of vision, the river of death, and the glory of the Almighty. And God is so good that there will be many, listen, there will be many arbors of sweetness along the way. 
There will be many arbors of sweetness. Yesterday, when we were out there, virtually the whole church was there yesterday on the beach. And while I was out there, every time uh, we had, if we had any kind of a break for even a moment uh, down on the water where I was, uh, we would turn and look up at the tent and, and we would just rejoice at, at what was going on at the tent that so many people were up there talking um, as they were getting water, talking about the Lord and the things of the gospel. And just the whole day, I just recognized what a, what a pleasant way to spend the day. God granted us beautiful weather, delightful fellowship, just a sweetness of spirit all day long. Brothers and sisters, there was not a sense of martyrdom and duty and, oh, I have to go do this. It was a delight to be there from beginning to end. God grants us many arbors of sweetness along the way. I said what we need is a Copernican, a Neo-Copernican revolution. Copernicus died in 1543, and you may not associate his name with this. Of course, what he's famous for is the heliocentric theory of cosmology. He recognized that the sun is the center of the solar system. Now, he wrote that work in 1543 and then died. And so he was not persecuted by the church. Galileo is the one who picked that up and during Luther's time was severely persecuted by his embracing of the Copernican idea. But Copernicus is not the one who came up with it. A fellow named Aristarchus, 230 years after the time of Christ, a Greek philosopher, astronomer, came up with it. Aristarchus observed the heavens and figured out that we're going around the sun, not the other way around. Brothers and sisters, when Galileo came up and embraced the Copernican Revolution, Martin Luther had just come to prominence. He had gone through all the difficulties of his life and was now, during the, during the good time of his life, the remaining portions of his life, preaching and teaching. And he heard about Galileo and he said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Brothers and sisters, you can be wrong, seriously wrong, for a long time. A lot of people can be wrong. And in our day today, we must recognize that the vast majority of people are dead wrong about why God created all things. The end for which God created all things, as Jonathan Edwards would say it. The whole world is wrong about it. The visible church is wrong about it. Much of the evangelical church is wrong about it. And therefore, we need a revolution because it is not a man-centered religion. It is not a God-centered religion as long as God is centered on man. It is indeed a God-centered religion that calls us and grants us the high, holy privilege of joining with Him in the pursuit of His glory. And Naomi comes to understand that slowly. But brothers and sisters, progress. And the question for us this morning is, are we making progress? Are you studying this? Are you embracing this? Or are you running from this? You know, I've, I've heard evangelical Christians say this. I really heard this. Maybe you have. It's one of those things I cringe at. There are two or three things I cringe at when people say, any joke about hell, I cringe at anybody joking about the devil or, or hell. And if I, if, I have, if I have an opportunity, I just stop them in the middle of it. It's so inappropriate. But I cringe when I hear people say sometimes, oh, I don't pray for patience. Oh, don't pray for patience because the Lord will give it to you through challenging circumstances. 
What is God's design for you? His design is that you would reflect His image. That the very image of His Son would be restored in you. And His Son is all about God honoring patience. And so therefore, if your desire is the glory of God in you, then you delight in praying for patience. You delight in praying for whatever it is that you recognize you need. Whatever it is that you recognize is inconsistent with the stamp and image of Christ upon your soul. Listen to these words um, of Sarah Edwards. What a remarkable thing. Sarah Edwards, uh, of course, the uh, wife and widow of um, Jonathan Edwards. This is uh, Jonathan Edwards' A Life uh, by George Morrison. If you've not read it, I strongly commend it to you. Uh, you need to read great works of the great saints. And this is one of the best. It, it truly is one of the best biographies I've ever read. George Marsden, I'm saying this to you because if you know George Marsden, it might surprise you. He was, of course, professor of um, theology at Duke University and went from Duke to Notre Dame. And so you're thinking, well, why are you quoting him, Bob? Uh, It's a brilliant work. As he studied the life of Jonathan Edwards, he was very faithful. And that's a remarkable thing about liberal theologians many times. As they study historical theology, many times they're quite faithful to what actually was occurring. And so I commend it to you. It's very well written. In the course of this, of course, he describes the death of Jonathan Edwards. You remember Jonathan Edwards died at, at uh, 55 years of age. He died in 1758, uh, just a month or two after having been installed as the president of Princeton University. And he thought, now my life is settling down. He said in one of his diaries that his life had been a life of turmoil, a life of difficulty. We tend to think of only when he was thrown out of his church in 1750 that, okay, that was really difficult. But he perceived his, his whole life had been just turmoil and difficulty. But now, having been installed as president of Princeton, he and many others thought, well, this is the purpose for which you came into this world. This is really, this fits you, Jonathan Edwards. He died just about six weeks later. And this is what his wife said. His wife who had paid attention through all those sermons. His wife who had come long, long ago to move from a man-centered religion to a God-centered religion as long as God is centered on her to joining in God with the glory of His praise. She writes to her daughter who was there when He died. She was not even with Him when He died. She writes to her daughter and here's what she says. Oh, my very dear child. This is the entire letter. It's very brief. And you can just kind of sense the grief that she's not able to write more. Oh, my very dear child. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am. And love to be Sarah Edwards. That's the whole letter. Her life was about the glory of God. And Sarah Edwards joins in from her heart, weeping, but with her hand held out, saying, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God is not a teaching that helps us in just difficult times, although it clearly assisted Sarah Edwards tremendously. 
If you know anything about it, God in His mercy took Sarah just months later. She did not live six months beyond Him and left several children behind, small children behind. And you just wonder about the way God works and moves in all these things. The purpose of God in every providence is His glory. The purpose of God, brothers and sisters, in every providence is His glory. Husbands, hear this. Wives, children, hear this. The purpose of God in every providence is God's glory. In John chapter 9, you need not return to it there. Of course, you're familiar with John 9. It is the passage of the man who is healed, the blind man who is healed, and the detailed analysis of that by the Pharisees and by the Lord Christ. And when they come upon him at the beginning of the chapter, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he made the clay and, and he healed him. It is for the glory of God. That is why it is. It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what about John 21 at the very end of the Gospel of John? Jesus turns to Peter and predicts to Peter that he's going to be persecuted and martyred. He says, when you're old, they're going to stretch out your hands. They're going to take you where you don't want to go and stretch out your hands and communicate it to him, John says, that thus he said he was going to die by crucifixion. So Jesus' last words to Peter are, you're going to die by crucifixion. And I'm going to be glorified in that. Your Father, the Heavenly Father, is going to be glorified in that. John Piper puts it this way, and I love this. He says that this is, he calls this the sixth point of Calvinism. The sixth point of Calvinism, to join in with God in his God-centeredness. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I, I think it's more central than that. Sixth point of Calvinism sounds like it's quite optional to me, although I'm not suggesting that Mr. Piper is suggesting that. But when we move, we'll notice something in our, in our hearts. We'll notice a move if there's a move in our hearts. And please hear this. If God is working in you to the point that you're now desiring to join Him in the pursuit of His glory in all things, you'll notice it in your prayer life. You'll radically notice it in your prayer life. When I hear people praying and when I go to churches and it's just an organ recital, you know, God helps so-and-so's lungs and so-and-so's hearts and so-and-so's liver. When I hear that, I I just recognize that, yeah, we should be praying for those things, but if that's the focus of your prayers, you're not there. But that you'd be crying out to God for you, for your family, for your church, for your community, for your business. Lord, use us to your glory. If that means prosper us, prosper us. Use us to your glory. We have a visiting family this morning with a house full of children and I do praise the Almighty for that. And I think immediately of Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 about that beautiful idea of a vine around the table. I praise God for that and the other families that we have here this morning with children. It is a beautiful thing to see 
prospering families with mothers and fathers who love each other and love their children and children who love their fathers and mothers. And we need to recognize that while God designed that, it isn't necessarily always the case for each of us and for all of our lives. We recognize that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and blessed be the name of the Lord. And we seek to discover quickly what is God doing and join Him in it, whatever that might mean in our lives. Now, there is a problem with this, and I'm aware that there's a problem with this. I'm just going to touch on it because of the time factor here. Please understand that when you say that God is the highest and best of beings and that He is pursuing Himself, some might say this, wait a minute, what about 1 Corinthians 13? What about 1 Corinthians 13? You know the passage. It's very familiar to you. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not seek its own. Well, do you see the possible problem here? God seeks His own. And He tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love doesn't seek His own. It's really no problem at all. It's not even a paradox. If I try to give you me, I've not given you the highest and best. Okay? Really communicating to you that I want the best for you is to give you the best. To give you the very best. But if I try to give you me, I'm very flawed. I'm very flawed on my best days. The God of the universe gives you Him because He can give you nothing better. He gives you Himself because there is nothing better than Him. He knows He's the highest and best of beings. And so it is appropriate that He offers Himself to you as the best thing that He can give you. It is the best thing He can give you. And in pursuing His own glory, He does that which is right because it would be wrong to pursue anything other than the glory of the highest and best of beings. And so He is. Brothers and sisters, that's something that you have to kind of get your mind around to grasp the reality that it is God-honoring, that it is good and noble and true and righteous, that God would at all times be pursuing His own glory and therefore to come more to an understanding of the privilege that we have as God extends to us the privilege of joining with Him in the pursuit of His own glory. R.C. Sproul often says, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. I love that phrase. I've learned it. I quote it. I like it. John Piper puts it this way, everything God does from the molecule to the galaxy is to display God's glory. Everything God does from the molecule to the galaxy is to display God's glory. May we come to understand that more and more, brothers and sisters. Deuteronomy 6.23, you recognize Deuteronomy, this last series of sermons that Moses preaches to the people before he dies. He says this, quoting God, or referring to God, Moses says to the people, He, God, brought us out that He might bring us in. He brought us out of Egypt that He might bring us in to His presence and in to His service and in to the privilege of joining Him in the pursuit of His glory. This, brothers and sisters, it is in this light that we will continue by God's grace our pursuit of the last ten chapters of Genesis next week as we take up chapter 40. It is in this light that we begin to understand more and more about what God is doing in the life of Joseph and in the life of Judah and in the life of His people. 
Brothers and sisters, in this light is where you should be living. And do you find yourself doing that? Do you find yourself walking in this light? What's the cash value of all this? Just a comment and I'm done. What's the cash value of all this? Well, first of all, it's true. It's true and it's right. And it assists us, therefore, in the right worship of the Most High God. Do you have a difficult employer? Joseph did. You can praise the Almighty. Do you have someone who slandered you? Joseph did. You can praise the Almighty. But now listen to this. Do you have a good employer? The praises of the Almighty should never cease from your lips. Do you have a good husband? Do you have a difficult husband? You can praise the Almighty if you have a difficult husband. Do you have a good husband? The praises of the Almighty should never cease from your lips. Do you have a difficult wife? You can praise the Almighty. He's working everything to the glory of His name and to the benefit of your soul. You can praise the Almighty. Do you have a good wife? Let the praises of the Almighty never cease from your lips. Do you have wonderful children? Praise God. Children, do you have good parents? Do you have loving parents? Do you have parents who are attentive to you and pray for your soul and care for you and demonstrate by integrity over and over again, day after day, that they love the Lord God and they're desirous for you? You'll learn what a rare jewel that is. God can use difficult parents and He does. And God can use dear and loving and attentive parents. And He does. And we are to come to praise Him in every circumstance with never-ending praise. I want you to recognize the orientation that this gives us. It's a whole new orientation. I'm going to close with this. We have four families here with children this morning. I praise God for that. Just what a delight to see. And and back here we have three families back here. Uh, What a delight to see all the children that are here this morning. I just want to remind you, as you're, as you're going through this life, it is the consummation of all things that should be in front of our minds all the time. The glory of God in this life, and that we're moving rapidly toward the consummation of all things. And John Angel James put it this way. He simply said to the children, your mother and I will be in heaven. Make every effort to join us. Your mother and I will be in heaven. Make every effort to join us. And the name of that chapter is the blessed occasion of the joyful reunion of a pious family in heaven. That is the end for which God created the world. That a pious family in heaven would be gathered around His throne praising His name and glorifying Him forever. Amen.